we packed our stuff up in the biggest U-Haul they made. Uh, there was four of us. We all went to Clarkson, Ryan, Jamie, Rick, and myself. And we were all living, you know, in that area, working in that area. We all packed up our stuff and moved to Vermont, rented a house on South Winooski Ave. And we got some office space in the Maltex building on Pine Street. And uh, we went to work. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Having sold his company for about a billion dollars in 2013 at the age of 38, Dealer.com co-founder Mike Lane joins us for a startup therapy session to talk about the dealer journey and becoming an angel investor. Welcome, Mike. This is Sam Roach-Gerber. Dave Bradbury. Recording from the Fairpoint Tech Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Yes, this is very exciting for us. And not just because I work for you as a director at VSET. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're pretty jazzed that we got you in Burlington today. We are. All right, let's go. So, Mike, what was the original idea for Dealer? How did it start? The original idea was back in 1998. Um, Great year. Work, yeah, long time ago. Uh, I worked in Boston. I was out of college. And I was driving my 1986 Volkswagen Jetta, which the odometer stopped somewhere around 138,000 miles. And that was four years before I bought it. And then I drove that <laughs> all through college, all over the northeastern United States. Uh, and then was commuting to work from uh, southern New Hampshire into Cambridge, Massachusetts. So you, we know you, you're a risk taker. <laughs> yeah. And you actually got that inspected? It passed inspection? or did you? Miraculously, the thing was a tank. I actually traded it for a backpack um, to a kid, and he drove it all the way across the country when I finally got rid of it. Nice. That. Well, we are modeling this program off a of car talk, so I think that was really really apropos. I have such a good image too. Like I'm like ready to go here. <laughs> so, so what was the problem or what were that you're trying to so, solve? Yeah. I'm from Vermont. I grew up in Georgia, Vermont, and I was coming home to visit my parents. And, uh, naturally I was coming to the quick conclusion that dumping, uh, 800 to a thousand dollars into an old Volkswagen a month wasn't the wisest investment with my money. So naturally, I went online, and back then it was Alta Vista and Lycos um, and all these ancient search engines uh, you would use. And I naturally searched for used car, Volkswagen Jetta, Burlington, Vermont. And lo and behold, the Earth Cars dealership in Williston came up uh, pretty much on top of the search engine. So that drew me immediately to their website, and they had what I was looking for and walked into the dealership uh, on my way back to my parents' house. So that actually started uh, a conversation with uh, Mark, who's also a founder of Dealer.com, and uh, we kind of hit it off. Just I was really impressed with uh, the user experience, and that was before the term user experience was even being used um, in the mainstream. And just got to talking to him and wondered why a, a little used car dealership in Williston, Vermont, was so cutting edge had such a vision for marketing cars online. And he basically had a vision that he wanted to sell or duplicate his website and sell it to other car dealers. So we got talking and uh, my background was essentially at that time was building uh, a similar system for the banking industry. I worked as a consultant and he basically asked if 
uh, I knew anyone that could build a system like that, that could be sold to other car dealers. So we kept in touch, started trading emails, and uh, the short story is I knew a bunch of people that could build a system like that. Uh, I was actually working in the Boston area with a, a bunch of former graduates of Clarkson University where I went. So we would drink beers at night and on the weekends and hang out and do things. And a lot of them worked in tech as well. So after uh, a few weeks of conversations, I kind of pitched it to them a little bit, like there's a pretty good concept out there. And we started exploring it and having more conversations with Mark. And we ultimately decided that we would moonlight a project for him to see how it would go and build a system. And we did that for a few months. And naturally, as you're going through that process of learning the space and what you're building, you start looking at the competition in the space and start seeing what's out there. And lo and behold, it was pretty bad. Um, there was very few players that were doing anything. The biggest player was, uh, you know, a VC-backed company, and their customer experience was horrible. Uh, essentially, they were giving away three-page websites to car dealerships. What, was it like AutoWeb or something? It was, like- uh, it was called Cobalt Group originally. Cobalt. Uh, they've changed their name since then. But they would give away a... Uh, a website to a car dealer and then convince them that they need to have their inventory online instead of pitching the value of like having an actual inventory online. So Mark had four pictures of every car online, you know, high, the highest resolution you could have at that time. <laughs> but you could actually see the vehicle and these guys were, were really promoting just, you just need to get online and that wasn't enough. So I have a quick question. Um, so we talk about, you know, when you have a startup, you're typically either um, creating something new or creating something better than was what's already out there. It seems like this might be a little bit of crossover between the two. Yeah, there's definitely, the, you know, there's websites out there, there's car dealers out there, there's car dealers that had websites. So we weren't inventing anything new. It was just evolving that experience of actually buying a car online. So after all that research, we essentially jumped right into, um, you know, building an actual product. And then a few months more into it, we realized, like, this could be a really big opportunity. So how long did that take in terms of months to, to come together with the team, you know, with, with Mark Bunkfigley and sort of the, the auto retailer experience? You and maybe others had the frustration about owning and buying and trying to sell a car. Like, you know, was it... Six weeks or was it? Oh no, as many years? months. Yeah, as many months. I mean, it was it's so long ago now. But if I had to, <laughs> you know, from the first conversation when I walked in there to kind of like when we said let's go, I would say it's probably six months, six so, months. somewhere around there. That's and pretty it, quick. I mean, yeah, that's a good dating period, right? I mean, you know, yeah. you better be careful, right? Figure out the concept, and you know, one day we just, you know, Mark was like, "Do you want to just start a company?" And we were all said, "Yeah, let's just do it." So he asked you out then? Uh, basically, yeah. Awesome, um, yeah. And then what, so what, did, did you all just quit your jobs, move to Vermont, uh, rent an apartment in the North End or something? What, what, how did that all come to come about? Well, we did all quit our jobs. <laughs> we packed our stuff up in the biggest U-Haul they made. Uh, there was four of us. Uh, all, all, we all went to Clarkson, Ryan, Jamie, Rick, and myself. And we were all living, you know, in that area, working in that area. We all packed up our stuff and moved to Vermont, rented a house on South Winooski Ave. And we got some office space in the Maltex building on Pine Streets. And uh, we went to work. And then um, I recall uh, 
when I came back to Vermont after grad school in, in 1998, uh, looking at the sort of seed investment documents that were shortly coming out. I mean, you, you, did, you raised a seed round, friends and family, or how did you finance this thing? Yeah, essentially the company started, I think, was somewhere around $100,000 in an American Express card. Um, and that pretty much evaporates in about three seconds when you start buying server software, you know, laptops back then. They weren't cheap. Um, you know, it's four thousand dollars, I think, for for a laptop. And then you need rent, deposits, insurance, like all all this stuff starts adding up real fast. So that evaporates. So we went out to yeah, did a family and friends round and collected five ten thousand dollars from aunts, uncles, cousins, neighbors, and you know, tech was hot back then. It was you know, there was the pets dot com. There's all this excitement about you know how how the internet is going to change everything. So we. Got, I, I don't even remember how much it was. It wasn't even a few hundred thousand dollars um, to get us going. Essentially paid ourselves dirt um, just to get by and basically buy beer and pizza, pay the rent, and uh, keep going from there. And I mean, that, uh, I, you, you know, tech was evolving and the, the internet was the, the big thing. And I think you guys also had a very relatable problem. You know, everyone has tried to buy a car and had a hard time doing it online. Yeah, I mean, even now, it's not always the easiest experience. It's gotten a lot better. Uh, part of our model, too, was, you know, we saw new car dealers. They were starting to get online. We thought that the used car dealers weren't online at all. So this is like cherry picking. So you focused on used? So we started used. on used car dealers. First client was Greensboro Garage in Greensboro, nice. Vermont. Um, we walked in there. The first day they got their website was the first day they got a computer, which was interesting. That's awesome. That was a giant step for an organization like that. How do we like turn that. this on? <laughs> yep. And then our second Oh, client, for sure it was dial-up modem, right? It was like Oh, yeah. It was like AOL. Yeah, yeah, Set AOL. up a free AOL account uh, <laughs> just to get online. And, uh, you know, we I think we gave them a camera, too, back then. Sony had one that took a, you know, a three-and-a-half-inch disc right in the side of it, and then you could put it right in your computer. Uh, but it worked. It was simple. We could teach someone that had no experience or next to no experience with computers uh, essentially how to merchandise cars online in under an hour. That's pretty that, good. So how did you how did you test or or you know you were living in this echo chamber right with with your whole team was in the same walls. I mean, how did you know it was a vision instead of a hallucination about where the market was headed, or, or did you know you're just going to do? It we anyway? didn't exactly know. But we knew the direction, you know, to point the boat, essentially. Like, this was going to happen. You could see the writing on the wall. We worked in the business in the space. And you could see just the world developing around this. And we wanted to be part of that, uh, you know, and be able to do it better than anyone else. So after that, that we did the first round. You guys are all settled in Vermont. Um, what, what happened next? I'm at the edge of my seat here. The the big thing was to, to get sales. We had really had to focus on sales while building a product. So there was a little bit of vaporware selling uh, a lot of times. And, you know, we quickly figured out because our, our second client was Lexus of Westminster in California. So think of Greensboro Garage, like, you know, dirt parking lot. Volvo, Very similar customers. Yeah. Volvos, you know, used Volvos, 100,000 miles, beautiful cars. Uh, and then you go Lexus to Westminster. It's essentially a marble parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So I think Greensboro Garage was paying us like $199 a month, and Lexus of Westminster was going to pay us $1,500 a month. So it was pretty quick. We did the math. Quite the spectrum. Uh, and realized that there was a huge need, and uh, the new car dealers were looking for something better, and they were willing to pay a lot more. So we immediately switched our attention to build out new car solutions as well as used car solutions and uh, really figure out how to merchandise cars, both new and did new. Did you have to buy new clothes? I mean, did you have to go from flannel and boots to, you know, chinos and loafers? It Despite was, the fact that we live in Vermont, we can dress up when we okay. leave. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, I think, um, and so there was five of you that, that came together to found the team, right? Yes, um, and then you you get shared housing, you coded. I, I love the story, this sort of backup lesson, right? Would you you shared this with me before about um, good good practice when you're when you're coding and building? Yeah, in the early days, you know, backing up stuff was always important. Um, we all left because we were working crazy hours, and we all went away for some holiday. We decided we we're going to leave like a lot of our stuff behind and just take the weekend off. So a lot of people left their laptops. Uh, I fortunately had mine for some reason, and then our house got broken into. And essentially all our laptops that were there were taken, stolen. And that was pretty early on. No. And that had, like, a lot of our... Control-Alt-Delete, right? ...code on it. Uh, And that was was a really rough experience to come back, because I came home, back to the house. I was the the first first one there. And I was like... You know, you don't realize what happened at first. Stuff shuffled around. You know, the hatchway is, like, broke open. And then it all starts to sink in real fast. And then you start looking around to see what's gone. My mountain bike was gone. Um, Did you miss your mountain bike more or the code base? Be honest. It's pretty close. Pretty close, yeah. Pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> it would kill me to lose Yeah, Rick and bike. Jamie might think otherwise. <laughs> but uh, they essentially had to rewrite a lot of that code. So we just call that version two, rewrite. Yeah, and, upgrade, uh, upgrade yeah, package, right? Fix all the mistakes you wrote the first time. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's cool. And then when uh, you moved into the Maltex building, and when did you start adding other, you know, team members that weren't, quote, the founders, the early employees? I think Scott Gale, like, I don't know, he came on fairly early, I think. And yeah, even before then, we had, a, a, you know, a few people, Annie worked for us, just helping with, like, human resources, bookkeeping, stuff like that. Um, and she would do pretty much anything. And that's something we look for in a lot of employees because you're a small startup and people have their roles and responsibilities. But at the end of the day, you're still a small company, so everyone's going to be willing to do almost anything. She would pick up the phone and take calls if she needed to, make sales calls. Like We all just did everything. Um, and then I'm not sure exactly when it was. It was definitely like, you know, not even a year in where we started to have to get help. And a lot of that was focused around sales and trying to figure out how to sell this thing. Yeah. When did you know you had to ramp sales? Was, was it payroll on the horizon or, you know, was We knew it- right away we had to sell. It was trying to figure out how to sell. Mark was on the phone 24-7 calling dealers. Um, and his now wife came to work for us as well. And she became one of the you know, the top salespeople, and she really figured it out pretty fast how to sell as well. Um, but still, it was, it was a balance. You need a lot of sales early on to really get a company going without needing a lot of funds. 
And that's kind of the trick and the art of it at the same time is trying to figure out how to how to ramp your sales as fast as possible, but also you know, build your code base with limited resources. So. Mm-hmm. And were there any sort of what they would call today, you know, pivots early on, other than the new dealer, used dealer piece with respect to, you know, I, I, some people call it product market fit, but really the sales weren't happening the way you thought because the the product you were building was 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 off a little bit, or was it just educating the market on this thing called the web that was that was happening? A lot of it is education, um, slowness. We figured out, you know, in our sales cycle because there's a lot of consolidation that happened, was happening at that time, still happens today. You know, there's one dealership in town, and that guy wants to own a second dealership. And to sell him a website, it was the same amount of work to get two. If you could convince someone that owned two or three dealerships, um, and that was, a, you know, a change in focus. So we were offering solutions for dealer groups that owned four or five, six dealerships. And that way we got five sales at once for the same amount of energy it would take to get one. And we really were the only ones that had a good solution in the marketplace for that early on. And that helped us grow our sales even faster. So that was that was like a good pivot for us. Um, but a financial pivot was in 2001 when the world melted down and we weren't making any money. Yeah, We weren't profitable yet. So we... We're in the process of actually raising a larger round, and we had, you know, big visions of raising four million dollars at that time. So we took, um, you know, road trips: New York City, Toronto. We felt like we were really close on getting a term sheet, and then the world melted down, and every investor in the world closed their checkbook probably within a week's time frame. When the Pets.com of the world uh, essentially <laughs> burned their $80 million or more, whatever it was, and uh, no one was taking and putting money into to tech companies, and we needed money. And luckily, we found a few individuals, angel investors, that were willing to give us uh, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars to get, get through, but they wanted to see a path to profitability. And that's, you know. How'd you show that? How'd you give that? Because, again, that's, that's not an uncommon request. The audacity to ask somebody, what's your path to profit? Well, we had one. It was just going to be, you know, a few years because we were going to hire a whole bunch more people. And uh, they basically gave us enough money, I think, somewhere to get around six months to get profitable. So it was cutting expenses and everyone in the company selling. Sales, sales, sales. You, yeah. could, you could buy your way out of this. <laughs> Sell your way out of this, essentially. And that's exactly what we did. Did you guys ever miss a payroll early on? Uh, we always made sure our employees were paid. We several times didn't pay ourselves. Deferred it, yeah. Yeah, Mark didn't take a paycheck for a really long time. Yeah, well, sometimes that gets lost in sort of the, the rearview mirror, right? Yeah. About, you know, I mean, so far we've heard you, you, you had to live together. Worked 24 hours a day, uh, had everything ripped off, including the prized mountain bike, which I'm still devastated to hear. Um, what was it? Was it Trek or what would you have? Uh, yeah, it was Trek. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, had, to, had as a group of technologists, largely, learn how to sell. 
right? What was, was that tough to see sort of someone maybe that was coming out of the, the coding end of things, learn how to engage with a human and make a sale? For us, I don't think it was that difficult. We all have, you know, kind of open personalities. Um, and Mark, having a, a great sales background in the car business, knew the space really well. So it was kind of like merging these different elements of tech, you know, SaaS before it was even called SaaS. The car business itself and selling to car dealers is no easy feat either because you're selling to the ultimate salesperson. I mean, you're sitting down with owners and they've been selling their entire lives and they don't really want to be sold. But at the same time, you got to figure out how to sell them. So it's a, a trick in itself to be able to do that. Sell them without selling. Was it a Jedi yeah. mind trick to like get them to think they were actually selling to you? <laughs> well, fortunately, most car dealers want the best. Mm. Um, you know, it's... For what it is, it's highly dominated male segment, uh, male owned, and you know it's a lot of it's ego driven too. And they they want to they want the best. So we had the best product and the best customer service, and we had a lot of people that were willing to stand up and say the, that we did, and other car dealers. A good the, reference accounts. Good reference on. accounts, yeah. and sometimes it was the guy right down the road that would give us a good reference because he was selling a different brand. And really, that's what helped fuel us was our reputation. I mean, if you have the best customer service and the best product, people typically don't stop using you. And our, our churn was really, really low. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, when we think about scaling businesses in Vermont, a dealer obviously is one of the first to come to mind. Uh, what was the hardest part of, of scaling with your time at Dealer? Well, other than having the funds to do it, so after we became profitable, you know, every dollar we made, we put back into the company, and we really didn't go out and try to raise more money. We just grew up organically. So after we figured out the financial part, uh, it was really finding the right people, learning how to find the right people, and then scaling the business and that, you know, there was challenges in space. We had people stacked on top of each other. At one time we consumed almost half the Maltex building and we had a uh, hundred people, um, close to a hundred people at that time, I would bet, stacked up in there. And Observing all fire codes, no doubt, right? I don't know anything <laughs> about what you're saying. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had to figure out how to put processes in place uh, learn what middle management was and how it could function great and how to how to coach people and really make them understand what our vision was. How did you learn that? Did, did you bring in some other executives that had been there, done that, or was that later on? Or, or did you, you know, uh, take a course or get a mentor or trial and error? We, we talked to a lot of people. Um, those guys that gave us money uh, back in 2001, they ultimately became board members and they gave us a lot of great advice and pointed us in the right direction, told us that we needed to improve certain areas of our, the business, and we listened to people. We just really just talked to people, listened to people, sat around, discussed things, um, and weren't willing to evolve the company. We were willing to evolve the company <laughs> uh, at every time, and a lot of people are resistant to, to that evolution of a company. They think change is bad, but we, we were willing to, to grow the company and embrace that and figure out how to do it and make changes and mistakes and fix them and move forward. And did the roles change with the founders and stuff? Like, you know, how did, how did they evolve? And, or, or maybe a better question is, 
what was the last year you wrote code? <laughs> um, the last year I actually wrote code was probably like 2007. And that seems like a long time ago. Yeah. Um, like riding a bike. Yeah, I mean, my, my job, everyone's roles evolved. You know, Mark was the CEO. Rick really headed up tech. Um, I just fell into the operations side of the business. And it was just a natural evolution for us to, to go into that, that, those spots. Um, Ryan and Jamie had little interest in being in management as we started growing. Um, so they became thought leaders uh, in their own right in the company. And they've just recently left as well. But, uh, yeah, there's, it was just, just a natural evolution for us. So Rick Gibbs is still, he's the, the Rick, Rick's the last one that's still there yeah, right now. And he's and running he a division for, uh, yeah, for he Cox heads up Automotive. Essentially all the tech for Cox Automotive. So he, if you think about what Rick does, he's probably influenced how you shop cars more from a technical aspect than anyone out there. He's in charge of. You know, dealer.com, which has a dominant market share for every dealership in the U.S., but he also now heads up all the back office solutions, even Auto Trader, Kelly Blue Book, anywhere you go to shop online, essentially, he has his hands on that right Dealer now. Dealer track, right? Yeah. Yep. Well all, right, well, all right, that's good. Good to know we, we, we got Rick for, for some issues when my page won't refresh. Um, so in, in, in 2011, um, there was sort of an inflection point, maybe a, a big decision with the company. You're, you were coming to about 100 million in sales, it was, if I recall, and and Excel came in. Uh, you brought a company in as a, a leading VC in the U.S. here as a, as an investor with a reported 30 million dollar investment. So, what was sort of the how come at that point? Uh, why and you know, was it the bigger vision ahead or was it maybe just some liquidity for prior angels or? Yeah, I mean, there, there's just, other than the, the 2001 event, the next real big event actually happened in 2008. And if you remember what happened in 2008 too, the world was melting down. Uh, right about that time, the largest player in Canada, we had just started dabbling in Canada, um, and they're called Trader Canada, and they provided website solutions. They ran a portal website as well. They came to us and said that uh, they wanted to use our technology and kind of white label it uh, up in Canada and instantly give us 4,000 more clients. Wow. Which was a giant jump in client counts, and they were willing to do a, a good deal. And so we just agreed to do that deal. How many accounts did you have at the time? Oh, I can't even remember. It's got to be, I think that would brought us to about 10,000, somewhere around there, Huge. between 10 and 12,000 clients. Um, so it, it, was, it was a good jump in terms of client counts and revenue as well. And they were so impressed with us that they actually asked to own a piece of us. And we went to the existing shareholders and said, would you like to sell uh, a piece of your, your stock? And they ultimately bought, I think, it was somewhere around 30% off existing shareholders. So after 10 years, yeah, let, your, let your aunt get her money back. Or, exactly. Yeah, right. That's nice. And the beauty of that deal at that time, because everything was melting down and everyone was arguing valuations were nothing. We were still able to pull off, I think it was a 40-time EBITDA multiple. 40 times EBITDA? Yeah. 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 
at that time yeah, for yeah. that deal. So that you're, worked you're out. You're grinning. Yeah, that, right. That yeah. Holy smokes, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially in that climate. Um, and then Excel in 2010 came to us and they said that they really wanted to own a piece of a great company in auto. That was They wanted something in their portfolio. Said we were the best and wanted uh, some of that as well. And they're one of the, the best VCs out there. And uh, so we did a deal with them as well. And that uh, was really the two events uh, that happened during that time period. I kind of want to just jump back to the, the personnel side of things. Um, I feel like Dealer has always kind of been known for having just an incredible culture and um, just cutting edge benefits for its employees. Um, if you could talk a little bit about why that's so important and, and kind of how that impacted the growth of Dealer and, and the people that work there. Sure. I think, I think from day one, when we started the company, we wanted to make sure there was an environment that essentially we would want to walk in the door every day. Like if you have a job and you hate walking in the door to that business every day, it wears on you. It's not fun. And we wanted to make sure that we were fostering an environment that, where we wanted to go to work every day. And we wanted employees, when we got them, to have that, that same feeling as well. And that's something that's kind of carried and driven. And we had to figure out how we talked about that as well. So you can talk about it in pay. You can talk about it in benefits. Um, we wrote down core values eventually to be able to describe what we believed in. And a lot of that stuff drove every decision we made, including, you know, the colors on the walls, putting a gym in, having trainers and massages available to employees, having a, you know, a food cafe that served really good food. It's a standard VSET co-working benefit package. Yeah, pretty so. much. You copied it. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but but that, that's kind of what, you know, the premise of all that stuff was in order to really connect with people and find people that that cared about, you know, having a great job and working with people they wanted to be around. You need to have that environment that people want to be around. Totally. Um, what was it like finding people, scaling? I mean, we're a small place, and, and I can't even imagine the pull that places like Texas or New York State or California, where probably 30% of the business is, uh, weren't calling to, to say, come here, relocate. Right. Um, it was tough in the early days. And I think, you know, tech companies in Vermont still struggle just because there's not enough population base here and enough tech people. Um, so early on, we scraped up what we could from here and there. And we had to start recruiting out of state, friends of friends, stuff like that to try to get people to come in. But we had a great environment. So if we get one person to come in, they knew someone was looking for a job in another state, um, they could just pick up and kind of come here. That was, you know, another reason, you know, people, someone, if one of your employees is vouching for the company they work for, just like one of our dealers was vouching for our, our software and service, it was a good thing. And it all goes back to creating that great environment. So that's, how we did it early on, but then when you need one engineer that works, but when you need like three or four, it becomes much more difficult. So we eventually had to, you know, formalize a bigger human resource department, and eventually we had recruiters, which was something I never thought we would we would need 
And then we had several of them, and I can't even imagine how many are there over there right now. Um, but essentially, yeah, there's there's people out there searching for people, and we had to figure out what type of people those were. So we would look for people that wanted to move back to Vermont a lot of times. Obviously, we'd tap out anyone that was here. Yep. Um, and then we would look for people that wanted to move back to Vermont uh, or back to New England. Uh, a lot of times people have families. They've lived in other parts of the country. And then we looked in areas that are like Vermont or like Burlington. It's like a Boulder, Colorado, for instance. Right. You know, people easier transition. <laughs> easier transition. People love being outside doing mountain sports. They don't care about the cold and the snow. They actually enjoy that stuff. And that's you know, we look in areas and try to find people that uh, would also like to be in Vermont. Yeah, and you did pioneer some, um, you know, collaborations with arms of government. I think you know, Senator Leahy and uh, Vermont High Tech, for example, if I recall, were yes. sort of some public-private partnerships and. I think that was a good use and actually showed other companies you can do that. So Yeah, a lot of a lot of it was retooling, you know, people's minds to get them. They maybe worked at IBM. I can remember Sue Cronin. She had worked just master's degree, I forget, material science or something, and left IBM, raised kids, and then she went to go back to work. And if you leave an environment like that too long, you kind of, in their eyes, become obsolete, but incredibly intelligent, um, hard worker and essentially she just needed a, a new job, new career and could jump into that. But we had to teach them a about the auto business because how many people really understand the auto business this is not Detroit. This is Vermont. <laughs> and then uh, uh, a tech tech, the tech world being in, working in a tech company and, and merging those things. So we essentially, I don't want to say manufactured employees, but we created training systems to basically give the people the education that they needed to be able to work for us. Well, I think one of the things that I've been totally blown away by, and I've had many friends that work at Dealer, um, is that you guys are willing to take smart people that don't have, you know, exactly applicable experience and train them to, to be the employees that you need. Um, and not everyone's willing to do that. And I think that makes a huge difference. Yep, and it goes back to what I said in the beginning. Are people willing to do other things and learn Right. Other jobs, it's like a core foundation of, of what we needed to find these elements in people. So it's not always about the resume. It's, you know, some people never went to college and, uh, you know, they have very senior positions at dealer.com. Yeah, Jen Kimmich for The Alchemist was uh, with us a couple of weeks ago talking about that. I don't. Th- I mean, she basically described their workforce as not having finished higher education, even high school in some instances, and just what a wonderful workforce of, and a group of people that they've, that they've cultivated. Um, we want to move beyond dealer two at some point, but I got to ask this, is this, is this myth or, or close to fact that this experience uh, with, with dealer, did it really create a hundred millionaires in this area? Through employee ownership and stock and stuff. A hundred millionaires? Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I think the sale of this company count. solved the budget deficit that year in Montpelier. Uh, it probably had a major impact on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. It'd yeah. be nice if there was one of these every year. Yeah, well, I, yeah, wouldn't it? <laughs> it takes a bit. I mean, I, I you know, we'll I get there. Well, I hope so. That's why Sam and I and uh, Ryan here come to work uh, trying to help folks. Uh, yeah, I mean, IDX, it, it took probably, you know, 17 years to get to the point where they, they 
started to have a, a big exit. Um, and again, exit isn't you know the end all be all. It creates a lot of income and wealth and and invisibility for our communities. Um, you know, and you guys certainly put a, a really great company together. And what it has done, the ripple effect. Uh, whether it's folks paying for education of their kids, uh, buying a house, uh, certainly cars, but um, but also going off to form new businesses um, right. or join new teams, I think is particularly uh, exciting. So, um, what have you been doing since uh, since you you left? You stuck on for about a year after the sale. Is that correct? Yeah, not quite. I, you know, I, I, when the sale happened, Dealer Track approached us. Uh, with an offer and I went into that knowing that we were moving from a thousand person company at that time into you know joining a 3,000 person company and that was a pretty big jump and my position would be changing obviously they already had COO and all these other positions and I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point been 16 years and I knew big corporate um, culture that I had less control over may not be for me. And quite frankly, I was exhausted after 16 years of, of doing that. And I really just wanted to, to take a break. It's basically raising a child. Oh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Good, good, good call, Sam. Thank you. Yeah. So the, I, I worked there for eight more months, eight, ten months, something like that, and uh, then just decided to go snowboarding for the winter and take a little time off. Was that a good year? Two winters ago? It was Two winters freezing. Ago. It was it that was, first really cold, that January. Yeah, the snow was great. It was great, but free, frozen. Yeah. I also I heard something about a barn. Uh, yeah, this past year I've spent a lot of time building a barn. I've completely lost my desk hands at this point in time. And You uh, went to school for this. I believe you went back for training, right? Yes, tomorrow? Did you do that? Or? Uh, that was for a piece of it, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I've been keeping very busy uh, hammering nails and uh, working on that project, which hopefully will be completed early next year. Uh, but I spent a lot of my time, too, working with entrepreneurs, sitting on boards, um, yeah, talk about that. You become, um, you know, an angel investor, uh, you know, with some companies, and I'm, I'm really curious. Uh, what gets your, what gets you excited? You know, what? How do you differentiate between something that that you think is interesting, whether you invest or not, right? But what do you yeah. look for when someone comes? Say, hey, Mike, I look at my idea. Yeah, there's probably one a week uh, <laughs> that I talk to, so it definitely keeps me busy. And the ideas are all over the board. And some of these include, you know, businesses that have been in, you know, trying to get going for two or three years, all the way down to, hey, I have a great idea. And maybe that idea is not so great, but uh, I tell them right up front that I'm going to be completely honest with them what I think of that idea. And there's there's some good stuff out there. I mean, there are probably, I would say, 100 companies in various stages around this area that think they have a good idea and are working to refine that and get a real business going, which is exciting to see. And then some of those that really stand out, I've, I've actually put money into as well. Yeah, yeah. No, we've we've you know, VSET and our seed fund has invested with you a couple times. I think that's how we first got going on together on on an energy investment. Um, what what surprised you about becoming an angel investor? 
What surprised me? Um, I thought everyone would work and be as diligent as we were when we started. So I've learned that there's all kinds of ways to do things in companies. And the way I would do it isn't necessarily the way that they would want to do it. So that's been... And when they choose their way, is it working? Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes not, though. Yeah, it's, uh, we describe early stage investing. It's sort of a team contact sport, right? That yep. some days you're holding them down, <laughs> other days you're picking them up, and other days you're walking side by side. So um, I, I think it's, again, Vermont, you know, we have so few uh, people that are really engaged in investing in the next hope the next my web grocer, the next deal, the next IDX, the next, uh, you know, citizen side or whatever. Um, there, there's folks out there, but I mean, nationally, we're still on a per capita basis, still about 50% below. Yeah. What surprises me about the, the environment here is there's a lot of money around this area and there's, you know, a lot of angel investing. There's not a lot of VC investing in this area right now which I think is, you know, a natural progression on how, how things will change with a lot of these companies really starting to get traction at this point in time. Um, but there's still a lot of stuff around here. And I think if a lot of other angel investors knew the opportunities out there, they'd be, they'd be interested. I've connected a lot of people. And then ultimately some of those have, have turned into investments for people. Yeah, I mean, I thank you for that. I mean, I, I do think there's still a... a I think of Vermont sometimes our smallness works against us because we, we think we know everything and everyone. Right. And, you know, I, I like to wake up and think maybe I know 10%, <laughs> right? right? And to be in search mode and to make some connections because, uh, you know, I think if you're able to syndicate a, a seed round, get a team a year, get some real good traction, some sales, then it becomes a little bit easier to go out to – uh, outside networks or even you know larger investors in state to to, to scale. Um, I mean, I, I think just our humble little portfolio is they've raised over 165 million dollars so far, and, and it's directionally positive. But there, right. there's more to there's more to come. Yep. I hope. Um, so, Mike, you've <clears throat> you've you know grown a successful company yourself in Vermont, and you're on a ton of boards. Um, what is your kind of overall feeling right now? Are you hopeful? Are you, is there something that's like totally missing in Vermont right now that, that we need to work on? What are, you, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm definitely optimistic and hopeful. There's, there's so much going on. There's a bigger pool of people and companies now. Uh, I think Dealer was a big part of that. Uh, I think the biggest frustration part is that the state doesn't churn out enough developers in its education system. And that goes right down to early education and integration into the schools and having programming options for the high school level and then really the, the schools um, and the colleges and universities around here scaling up their programs. I know Champlain is really on board of that. Um, UVM's taken a lot longer to get on board um, and really understand what the value of that is. I'd love to see, you know, not dozens of people graduating from UVM, but hundreds of uh, people graduating from UVM with computer science degrees. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think a couple of years ago, we, we did, there's 11 CS 
departments in the state of Vermont at all these smaller colleges around. And, yeah. you know, how do you create density yep. is, is really the challenge so that companies can, can meet them, one, know they're going to exist, and then maybe provide some, some local options for, for employment or internships for that matter. So. Yep, because I see a lot of companies that have multiple offices that are looking for engineers, people with computer science backgrounds, and when they have an office in Dallas or Atlanta or San Francisco, it's easier for them to find someone there. So that they don't put that position here, and those are high-paying very good jobs that we want here in Vermont. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, excluding your own personal investment portfolio for a sec, what other companies around Vermont do you think really have this large scaling potential? Um, you said Citizen Cider. I think they are an organization that has a great product that people love, um, Totally not a tech company, but uh, the technology that they use <laughs> and the science behind, you know, making cider is is really cool. And they're they're growing. A lot of the, the breweries around here are just exploding. I've invested in a few of them myself, and it's really fun to see, you know, small five ten person breweries, you know, pumping out products uh, way beyond New England at this right. point in time and creating great businesses right here in the States. So I think that, although people say it's going to be saturated soon, who knows? I thought it would be years ago. Uh, People love Vermont beer. And that's a whole industry that continues to thrive and grow. I think healthcare, there's some companies in the healthcare stuff that are continuing to innovate in the space. And that's, you know, a market that's not going to go away and it continually changes, which creates opportunity uh, for them. Uh, in that space. Is there a name or two that comes to mind you think you're... Uh, not off the top yeah. of my head, but there's several that are moving. And have you, you seen... You probably know them, but yeah, <laughs> better right. than probably I probably shouldn't talk about right? Yeah. Yeah, right. You don't want to jinx it, right? Yeah, what a, that was a bad question. Um, <laughs> sorry. Sorry about that. We don't want to jinx it. I guess, too, the reason I ask that is... is uh, you said earlier, you know, every every decade or every two decades, you need a or every week we want a a, a, a big a big win, a big yeah. wealth creation event, and you know that's not going to happen here, you know. And it seems like every ten years, twelve years, we have one of these signature employers have some liquidity, and you know, there's an element of of uh, folks in public office and locals that are really fearful that oh my God, we sold, they're going to leave. Right, which in dealers' case has been anything but. I mean, it's expanded. It's, it's still adding 200 people a year if they can find them. Um, and the challenge has been to sort of take that cycle of, of you know, 12 years or so and try to compress it so maybe it's six years. You know, so you get, you know, if we just, have, if we just doubled this sort of cycle we're in, the benefits of, of wealth, of new startups, of sort of critical mass, can can happen and i don't know what sector that comes from you know there's i don't know where the next uh four four friends are huddled up and in, in some barn up in uh, st johnsbury you know right. dreaming it up big but it's kind of fun to to think about that yeah and i don't think necessarily there, there's the home runs there's like the dealer was a home run unfortunately i was part of that but there's also the the singles that can happen which 
we want to happen. You know, companies selling for 20, 50, 80 million dollars is really it's good. Real. And that that's very real and a lot oftentimes it's, you know, those those founders are making millions of dollars in those types of scenarios as well. And that's good because a lot of times those get absorbed and they continue to operate and expand in Vermont. And those people that have money now can go off and create new things and the cycle continues. Well, they pay their taxes too. I mean, well, they definitely have to pay their taxes. You're right? not getting I mean, out of that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sort of Vermont's business model, right? Personal income tax. Right. And, and through entrepreneurship, is that's the, that's the quickest way, right? So, Mike, any, uh, any interest in being a founder again? Someday. Someday. Maybe someday soon. Oh, I see. He's scratching, he's scratching the itch right now to our listeners. We can't wait. Uh, sounds like it's going to be a beer company, though, right? Or, you know, a barn. Something You're going to be a, a barn restore. That would be pretty cool. That would be a fun job, except uh, for when it's cold. <laughs> yeah, right. It's been super cold. Um, well, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll sort of wrap this up here. Um, and I want to just point out, too, that... Uh, I think you're on the board of Spectrum. Yes. Right? And then uh, you've been involved with the uh, Workforce Development Board at the state. Yes. Is that true? So yep. thank you for doing that. You didn't have to do that stuff. You chose to. So good on you. Um, we're all working hard to try to create opportunities for, for our kids. You know, I've got middle school kids. You, you do too yep. as well. Um, and I don't know whether we have shared optimism of the future or shared fear. But at least we're working toward it. Exactly. All right, well, um, this takes us to our, our final question, which has been, I, I've been getting to ask this a lot. Uh, thank you, Dave. I, that's, you shouldn't have. You ask it so well. Thank you. Um, no pressure or anything. Mike, magic wand. You could change one thing in Vermont right now, today. What would it be? Wow. Anything. Anything? Don't think too hard. Frontal lobe. This is big picture. Anything I would change Anything. in Vermont right now? Yep, snap of the finger. Um, probably just end homelessness. Homelessness. End it. Nice. Love it. Love it. Particularly with the temperatures going below tonight. Exactly. Totally. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. All right, Mike thanks, Lane, guys. Thanks very much. Fun. Hope you'll come back again soon. Sure. This has been Start Here with Sam and Dave, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and even the accidental entrepreneur. The series made possible by the Vermont Technology Council and Fairpoint Communications. Follow us on Twitter at VSET, that's V-C-E-T. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to work.